Is there any comments about the sit tonight? What was observed? Yeah, Lynn. I don't know if this is really what you're asking for, but my experience was that I've had a kind of hard week with a huge, huge disappointment of not being able to develop a project that I wanted to develop. And feeling kind of angry about the people that I was involved with because I felt like they didn't come through in ways that they could have. And feeling like, and realizing when I was angry that it was just anger. It was not about them. It was about my feelings. I understood that. But still, I kind of let it fester because it kept coming up. And I talked a little bit about it to some friends of mine, too. So I was kind of bitching. Then during the sit tonight, I realized that I came back to what unfolded for me or what was for me is the reason I'm doing this, well, it was, but it didn't happen in that sequence. The experience was love for humanity and really committing, just being totally committed to love, loving life, caring for life. And then remembering, oh, and that's what my project was about. <laughs> so uh, there's no, I don't have to be angry. I can just be like grounded in the commitment and caring for life. And so allowing that to arise and allowing that to be what I'm present to. And letting the other, the anger, come go. Yeah. And in a very simple way, that this has profound effects on our life. Having just seen that and maybe have seen it with uh, a little bit more clarity just because of the context of being in a quiet room and being encouraged to be paying attention in that moment-to-moment way, the clarity uh, that your mind had as it saw love arising for whatever reason and then saw the effect of that, of having love in the mind, kindness in the mind, and seeing how things got transformed, that forever changes the mind stream. It will always now be easier for the mind to, um, in a sense, relate with love because of having seen that. It changes things down the road. Seeing that love works, basically. You know, we could have had a very similar kind of insight seeing, like if you had caught maybe your mind earlier in the set when it was investing in something more divisive, whatever judgment of yourself or judgment of others or whatever it might have been. And if you had seen very clearly how that judgment tightened everything up you know that's another that could be another powerful learning that that simple discovery of cause and effect this is so useful this uh, investment so that whenever we're happy feeling light feeling free whenever we're heavy and burdened what arises in the mind is not blame or attachment but what arises in the mind is something's happening now that's supporting this experience. What is it? How is this coming to be? Because any experience that arises, arises conditionally. 
And that conditional unfolding uh, is affected by the understanding we have of that conditional unfolding, profoundly affected by the understanding we bring to it. That's part of the conditional unfolding. It's not like we're observing the conditional unfolding like, you know, you go to those fancy aquariums now and you got that thick glass and it's like you can see the undersea world. But, you know, you're safe in your little air spot. <laughs> but it's not like that in, in this world. It's like uh, who we are in the moment, what's happening in the moment, how we're holding or relating, how the mind is understanding. All of these are profound contributors to how it's all unfolding and to see clearly that blow by blow how love arose and how everything changed then changes everything you know just seeing that in that way thanks Ben for sharing that maybe time for one more or two more people to share if there are any other reflections on your sit tonight and just generally, and you might do this in your small groups when we meet later in the evening, you know, just your own uh, experience with seeing the conditional unfolding of the mind, of experience. Yeah, Casey. Just defining it as stress can sometimes be what we're doing to it. just right and so just to restate what I heard Casey saying you know what the practice leads to 
is, uh, you know, we begin with all these different skillful means and different ways of working with our experience. But over time, what, ex- what practice leads to is just one move, basically, which is a movement towards awareness and the trust of awareness. But that doesn't mean we can go right there, you know. Initially, we'll have to have these, all these different moves, all these different strategies, different approaches of working with the mind and working with experience. But ultimately, there will be abandoned because we're going to discover over and over again in, in different ways with different lessons um, this one move, which is just to be aware. Because it's what ultimately leads to freedom. And you'll see, I'm sure a lot of you notice this, that uh, like you're sitting and, and you're noticing the mind moving, on, things are unfolding in the direction of stress, and uh, you try to do something about it, but it, you, you don't, it doesn't work. You know, it either gets worse or it doesn't get any better. And uh, so a, a lot of the times the stress we're experiencing is precisely because how we've responded to stress. That we're not helping. But giving up isn't the way either. And so this is the this difficult place we find ourselves in where we're pretty we've got some insight, some understanding that we don't know what to do, or that what we're inclined to do isn't gonna help, doesn't help. But don't know what else to do. And just that willingness to be patient. And this is the time to bring up the teachings, you know, to remember the teachings. Like to um, remember the teaching, like, is there any identification or attachment to anything in the moment? Like, even the attachment to wanting to practice skillfully might be the problem. I see that a lot in my practice. It's, in a way, it's my first instinct when I'm practicing and something difficult, like even in daily life something difficult comes up for me it just rushes in it's a big, uh, way too gross force in my mind, just rushing in, okay, practice with this <laughs> don't screw this up you can practice with this and it's like the first thing I have to do is I have to practice with that <laughs> it's like practicing that way too big thing that big hairy monster that doesn't want to blow the situation you know I have to see it for what it is you know it's just that it's just that big fear based uh, habit of mind that uh, either fear based or greed based like wanting to be the good practitioner or not wanting to blow it and uh, I just have to see it and let it be what it is not be confused by it You recognize that? <laughs> so, yeah, maybe just one or two more. I think for Monday nights during the winter, sleepiness or something, that I really just talk to after working and just to be quiet and tend to fall asleep. So I was kind of walking and I'm going to fall asleep and I'm not going to fall asleep. And I'm like, oh, and, you know, you're too straightened about it. But it's just watching the mind. For me, the most obvious thing is just to watch it with what level of energy I'm at. Before you <coughs> kind of go through the 12 step, before you even make contact, we just energy 
really, really aware of it. And both of the, both of the sets, and being able to play with them a little bit more than normal, not watching the energy level, but watching what happens when you're messing with the energy. Say more about what you mean by messing with the energy. Well, whether you're bringing it up or down, or or lighter or darker, you know, the intensity of the energy, but then how your thoughts would change based on how that energy was. I think it was just the lack of sleepiness. Yeah. After being here for a couple of weeks and getting really sleepy, feeling that difference for, you know, what's often the same, the same thing. I don't know if this is what you're referring to, Gail, but one thing that I do is, um, and I don't even say, it's not like I actually say this in my mind when I'm practicing, but in hindsight, it's something like uh, the way that I'm working with whatever's happening, like in your case you're describing sleepiness, is uh, somehow aware or somehow allowing the purity of the attention to uh, to arise that sort of pure awareness because the, in a sense that pure awareness isn't affected by sleepiness or restlessness it isn't really affected by anything so in a, it's like a confident a confidence that there's a, a way for the mind to relate that's unaffected by the conditions. Yeah, and it's almost, you know, at this point, it's almost being aware of the conditions that are affecting. Realizing it, that, that there's a different way of looking at it mm-hmm. and being able to see the gross easier. But what's seeing the gross? Well, and that, that's 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 that may be helpful. Like you still have to see the gross. You have to see whatever it is that's unfolding. But you might just have a sense, like a, an interest in the purity of what's observing or seeing or relating to everything that's unfolding. And as you were describing it, that's what I was like. When you're trying to describe your mind versus me dabbling on, is understanding interest and energy. And they're two really different things. And yeah. until you mentioned interest, it's like, oh, I think that's actually what it was more about was the interest. Yeah. The yeah. Because the interest is actually pointing to a inherent quality of the mind that we don't have to do anything about. And generally, when we think about energy, we think about needing to do that. But, but the interest, it, it has more of a sense of it's just what the mind is. You know, the mind is interested or it is alert. Maybe we'll leave it here so we have time before the small groups to... I'd like to go through, like I suggested last week, and I thought we could do it together tonight, um, go through these and reflect on each of the 12 and do them in different directions. Um, So we're talking still about the circle, the wheel of life, as it's sometimes called. Sometimes... Uh, described in terms of these 12 links links of dependent origination but other times the way the Buddha taught it didn't include all 12 so don't get stuck on the particular formulation or description 
because what we're really, what the Buddha is really describing is a conditional unfolding. And if we try to force what we're observing or what we're waking up to to fit that, we may not see all 12 or any of the links, but we can see very clearly the conditional unfolding. How each moment is conditioning the next moment. That's what it's about. That this moment right now is arising out of the previous moment. And that what's coming next is being conditioned by this moment. And to really get interested in this conditional unfolding. And I mean, that's exactly what's happening. So it's not like we have to sort of look at something different than what's already arising or appearing in our experience. This is the conditional unfolding. And just to get interested in that, like how each moment is conditioning the next. That moment that Lynn saw the arising of love conditioned the next moment of experience. So, you know, in terms of the, just the description of that wheel, the one side, so looking my direction, this side from uh, karmic formations and consciousness and mind and body and the six sense gates and the uh, contact and feeling, it's really just talking about the mind and body, the five aggregates. And then... When the mind and body is ignorant, then the inevitably having a mind and body leads on to this other side of the equation, which is the experience of suffering. And as I think I described or mentioned several times, the whole point of dependent origination is the Buddha offering a description accounting for how suffering arises without a sufferer, without somebody suffering. So this conditional unfolding of the experience of suffering. How does that happen as a natural process? And how can it cease? And so we want to get a sense of the dynamic, like how the the mind and body, uh, under certain circumstances, leads to the appearance that there's somebody suffering, and how the appearance of somebody suffering leads to the construction of mind and body, (coughs) perpetuates mind and body. Does that make sense? So there's an engine here, you know, a a wheel or a a pattern that is self-fulfilling where the experience of suffering has the tendency to recreate the experience of mind-body or this and this with ignorance and the experience of stress tends to create the sense that somebody's suffering, that this isn't good enough, or I want things to be different than this, or whatever that particular experience of suffering might be for any one of us. And this is the dynamic. Without the experience of suffering, the mind and body doesn't get set in motion again. Does not. And without a mind and body, there's no experience of suffering. So this is a unique perspective. Even within the Buddhist world, this sort of Theravada perspective or the perspective that comes out of the Pali Canon, the teachings of the historic Buddhists, is kind of unique where this existence, having this existence depends on suffering. No suffering, your existence doesn't continue. The body may have its own momentum, like after you're no longer suffering as a human being, you're not going to instantly disappear. Although I know in, in some of the yogic traditions there's 
there's a sense that after full awakening, uh, that on some conditions, it's like you, the body can't continue. And the, the description is like, you know, the Coleman lanterns, and you get that silk bag, and it burns. And once it's burned, it still looks like a silk bag, but it's just ash. You know, if you touch it, it just disintegrates. And it, that's the image, that the person still looks like a person, but they're hardly there at all. And any particular condition could allow for the complete dissolution where the person dies. Because the sort of what, what the condition that keeps the mind and body in motion is the ignorance and the suffering. And when that has been uprooted, then the only thing keeping the mind and body in motion is sort of the karma from that life, you know, the momentum of that life stream. And so this brings us to the, you know, this very paradoxical part in Theravada Buddhism that, you know, this question that the Buddha was asked, well, what happens to the Buddha after he dies? And the Buddha wouldn't usually answer that question because the person doesn't even understand what the Buddha is here and now. Because in a very real sense, there isn't anything there. It's like that ash of the, the bag. There really, it's just this momentum of mind and body, but there's nothing behind it that's going to lead to anything continuing. So it's just something spinning out the last bits of its momentum, and then it ends at the time of death. In, Buddhist, in Theravada Buddhism, it's called uh, Parinibbana. So Nibbana is the realization of cessation. So when you have an experience of Nibbana, wake up to Nibbana, the mind is seeing the way that it is in such a way that the forces that perpetuate mind-body get weakened. And then with deeper states of awakening, it gets completely uprooted. So there's no more uh, force of ignorance in the mind-body. And so it's just the remaining elements of that physical mind and body finishing itself out. And so at death, for a fully awakened person, then nothing continues. Because there wasn't anything behind that body. It was just nature at that point. There wasn't any neurotic ignorance that would lead to the perpetuation. And this really helps us understand the dynamic, the description of dependent origination. Because the Buddha is describing how it is that the mind and body replicates itself over and over again. And it happens moment by moment and in traditional Buddhist understanding lifetime to lifetime as well. Where the first part, um, the uh, ignorance and the karmic formations that's what we would consider past causes. And I'll send out, Haya has a nice link, and I'll send that out with another sutta, uh, either tonight, probably tomorrow morning. Um, but it will be just showing uh, a different version of this chain, where we're looking at the process of dependent origination in terms of past causes. So whether you think about this in terms of many lifetimes or just in this moment, this moment is arising out of past causes. And they're arising as ignorance, you know, from this traditional point of view, ignorance, 
And then the effect of ignorance arises in terms of the dispositions of the mind, like the unfinished business somehow in this mind stream, which you could call dispositions or tendencies. Tendencies that come out of a self-view or a self-centered view, which is ignorance from a Buddhist point of view. So every moment or at the beginning of life in this lifetime, the past causes is this ignorance, wrong view, taking things personally, and the dispositional effect of that wrong view that is in the mind stream or is the mind stream. And so that, those, uh, that force of ignorant dispositions is the cause for consciousness arising. So now we're in the world of, so that was past causes, now we're in the world of present effects. Those past causes, ignorance, and the effects of the ignorance, which we call karmic formations, then causes present moment effect, which is, in short, the mind and body. But in the 12 links, it's a little bit more descriptive. So we have consciousness, which is one of the five aggregates, and then mind and body, or nama rupa, the Pali, and then the six sense gates, which is there in some of the descriptions of dependent origination and not there in others. But, you know, the mind and body, of course, well, we all know has, in, in the case of a human at least, these six sense gates. And then when you have those, you're sensitive in that way, you're going to have contact. And if you have contact, you're going to have feeling. And up until this point, consciousness, and, or karmic formations, consciousness, six sense gates, mind and body, feeling, this is just what we mean by mind and body. When we have a mind and body, we have contact, we have feeling, we have perception, we have karmic formations, the tendencies that are either active or not active, depending on our experience in the moment, depending on contact. So, and in, this is the world where we practice mindfulness. We're mindful of the body, we're mindful of the mind, we're mindful of feeling, right? This is what we're taught, to be mindful of this. And when we're not mindful, we're like blind, or we're a robot, or just this, you know, where the contact immediately leads to a feeling, and the feeling immediately leads, because of the dispositions, we take the feeling personal. We have a pleasant feeling, we take it personally, and we want more of it. Initially, it's just a craving, it's just the tendency to like pleasantness. But then we, we start to construct a sense of a self that not only likes pleasantness, but wants to do something to hold on to that pleasantness. That's called grasping or clinging. And then that leads to the sense of becoming. You remember this from the circle. And the becoming then leads to taking birth. So we go from the past causes, which are ignorance, karmic formations, to present effects, which is this mind and body, the sensitivity that we have, the contact and feeling that we have, to the present causes. So from present effects, having a mind and body, we set something in motion. So this is present moment effects. We're setting something in motion. That's the craving, grasping, and becoming. Where we're sort of leaning, we're sort of having a feeling, and then through the process of mental construction, we're constructing as somebody who wants to get rid of this experience because it's unpleasant. 
or we're constructing of somebody who wants more of it. Some of you know we're starting to look a little bit more seriously at retreat land for the community. And, you know, I notice all the time um, that it's a pleasant thought sometimes. Sometimes it's not a pleasant thought. But sometimes it's a pleasant thought. And then I'll notice that sense of becoming, you know, being the person who's part of a community that has this nice land to go hang out on or something like that. And uh, and it's like a whole, you, you can really see how that could be that what the effect in the mind is actually creating some unfinished business that will have to manifest down the road in order to complete what it is that has been set in motion. And see, normally because we're not paying close attention, we don't feel there's any moral problem, any existential problem setting things in motion. We just blindly set things in motion all the time and have, basically, according to the way the Buddha describes it, for an incalculable time, we have been setting in motion karmic effects through craving and clinging and grasping and becoming based on pleasant and unpleasant feelings, experiences. And uh, But we don't have to do that. We can be wise and see <clears throat> what's happening so that we're not making any present effects. Oh, I'm sorry, present causes. So we have past causes, present effects, which is the mind and body, and I think I misstated this a moment ago. And then we have present causes. So in the present moment, we're, we're planting seeds, basically, setting in motion present causes that will then have future effects. So that's how you get this, the cycle of samsara, always moving onward. Past causes leading to present effects, present effects leading to present causes, present causes leading to future effects. And then those future effects go on from there to the next life, for example, or the next moment. So just to complete this, present causes then there's that craving, grasping, becoming part of the chain. And then future effects is the birth and death. Birth, aging, sickness, and death onto ignorance. That's the future. That's what's getting set in motion in the future. So when my mind does go from a bad feeling or a pleasant feeling into craving, liking it, into grasping, becoming the one who's going to do something about that pleasant or unpleasant feeling, constructing a whole or having not just planted but watered and set in motion that's becoming, then in the future, whether it's the next moment or some distant future, there will be a birth and death around what has been set in motion. And like the Buddha says in different ways at different times, there's no way for that not to have an effect, for that effect not to happen. And what the awakening process does is it eliminates the, the necessary cause for the continuation of these circles, these cycles, which is the ignorant identification with 
the cycle generally and specifically with pleasant and unpleasant. So instead of taking it personally, the, the relationship, like Casey was pointing to in his comments, the relationship to the, the circle, which is just the experience now, dependent origination is a description of here and now. The, the relationship is one of pure awareness. Letting it be. Not trying to be skillful even. So even that stance ends up being unskillful, trying to be skillful. Or another way of saying that, the way to be really skillful is to be profoundly present with things. Interested, alert, fully there, fearless. So you can name that non-doing, you know, that way of just pure awareness. You can give it qualities that then help you tease out the opposite. You know, when you talk about fearlessness, then that helps us tease out how we're afraid of being open, for example. Or if you say calm, then that helps us tease out sort of agitation or restlessness. Accepting helps us tease out greed. Loving helps us tease out aversion. So we use these different words in terms of, like, oh, I'm practicing loving kindness. But actually what we're really doing is we're practicing teasing out aversion from the open awareness that we're cultivating. And so we do two years of loving-kindness practice because it can be quite skillful to help the mind recognize how unnecessary it is to keep relating with aversion, how it's possible not to relate with aversion. I want to leave it here so we have enough time for the small groups. If it's quick, Casey. Or you can share in the small group, maybe. So in the small Uh, I just want to say that I really do understand, I mean, I get, and it makes a lot of sense to me, what do you keep calling it, that I keep not remembering conditional rising? I see it, and what I love about Buddhism is that it's all something you can practice and test for yourself. But how do you go from that karma creates mind and body I see absolutely no evidence of that anywhere ever in the universe. Well, just watch it moment to moment. Don't try to figure it out in this sort of cosmological sense, like how we get from the moment of death to the, you know, the idea that somehow that mind stream is reborn in another womb somewhere. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't worry about that piece because you can observe it moment to moment. It's a nice story because it makes us responsible for our mind stream. If we don't have that story about rebirth, then it can arise in our mind, I've just got to make it to the end. You know, just got to make sure that I've got enough good programs to watch and, a, you know, enough income and, and that's it. But if we have this idea that it just keeps repeating, then we really take responsible for the mind. So, yeah, but, but in terms of confidence in the conditional unfolding, you don't need that lifetime-to-lifetime model to see that clearly and to really see that that's the case. Because it's unfolding right now. There's birth and death from moment to moment in very much the same way, as, it, as at least as it's explained, lifetime-to-lifetime. So, so not now, but at some time... 
interpretation of how it is that the end of desire, is that whatever that word might be used, at some point you become um, by you can you know, theoretically disappear. Like, um, yeah, but see, but that's because the assumption you're bringing to the moment about who or what this is is based on your conditioning and not on your investigation. And so we all have a strong opinion about what this is, but yeah, but we have to we have to really look carefully at what this is so that our direct observation transforms or cultural conditioning about what this is. Yeah. You've been describing this in, you know, somewhat negative in terms of how suffering, you know, kind of magnifies and continues. And it also has, I guess, some kind of application in a sense of, you know, more skillful means of yeah. being able to kind of terminate the cycle. As the thing of like, we'll get there. You're <coughs> Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's that's the teaching on trans uh, transcendent origination. But basically, exactly as you described, Alan, there has to be a conditional unfolding of release. Release is also a conditional happening. In the same way that the repetition of states of suffering is a conditional happening. The release from that is also conditional happening, which is why we have the second half of the class <laughs> to look at that. Yeah. So we'll get there in the next weeks. So let's break up. I think of, uh, maybe if we count off by 20, that should about do us. Do you want to start? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, Okay, so 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 16, 20. Okay, so just because I can't. 16 and 17, you're a group of four. And then uh, 18 and one person from 19, please. Raise your hand. One 19. Doug, you're, with, you're an 18 now. Okay, the other 18. Uh, I'm sorry, the other 19. You're a 20. Okay. Good. So, 20 in my office, 18 in Shelley's office, and we have 17s, right? 16. Oh, then we go to 16s? Okay, good. Okay, so 16, 15, 14, and 13 in the community room, and 12, and 11, and 10 in the lobby, and 9 on the white couch in the basement, right under here and eight around the table in the workshop in the basement, and seven, six, five, four, three, two, and then maybe one sort of in this area here. 
And you can always change once you get your group. And, of course, what, we're, what you might share in the small groups, anything that seems relevant, but in particular describing, like you did the first time you shared, your own understanding of the conditional unfolding of experience, what you're learning, what doesn't uh, uh, sort of align with your experience, what seems to align with your experience. It's okay to share doubt. Don't feel like you have to toe the party line. But whatever whatever your experience is, anything uh, that's come up from your study would also be appropriate to share. And it, because we haven't talked, I haven't shared so much about that, you might even give your group a few moments just to sit in silence before the first person begins to speak, just to get a sense, collect your thoughts about what you might want to share. And it's nice to set the order right from the beginning so you don't have to figure that out as you're going. If you can hear this bell, then you don't need to keep time. But if you're not going to hear the bell, then select the timekeeper for the group. So about three minutes per person. Okay? Again. And somebody from group one, oh no, I think it's group 19 is in my, or 20 is in my office. Any 20? <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.